Chapter 5 The Apologies of Selfish Bastards Before dinner, Lucas received a phone call. It was Nate Applegate from the Puyallup tribe. I've got an update for you, Mr. Lucas, he said. Lucas was excited. He'd completely forgotten about Applegate. I'm ready. I found an elder who confirmed that Last Rush was, indeed, considered sacred ground back before the reservation was created. That's great, Lucas said. Would he be willing to talk with the county assessor's office? I'm afraid not, Mr. Lucas, Applegate said. What? Why not? He said it wouldn't do any good, Applegate said. How can he say that without even trying? Like I said, Mr. Lucas, he's an elder, Applegate said. So? So he's had a lot of experience watching how, for lack of a better word, white culture has ignored our traditions. No matter the depth of our belief in them, Applegate said. Lucas sighed. He supposed the old guy had a point. I'm sorry to hear that. Is there any way you could contact the assessor's office? I'd like to, but I'm afraid I don't have the authority to do that, Applegate said. Lucas didn't want to understand, but he did. Applegate had done his best, but on this battle, the Puyallup were sitting out. Well, Lucas said, that's too bad, but I understand, and I want you to know I really appreciate your effort. You're welcome, Mr. Lucas, Applegate said. Good luck. Lucas is in the grove, looking at the knot, waiting for something to happen. The tree is a radiant olive green, and if he were to take his eyes off the knot, he'd see that everything is green. Everything. The sky, a deep lime green. The heavy, floating clouds, an ivy green. The forest floor, a split pea green. All of a sudden, without any physical change to alert Lucas, the knot is speaking. This is the only way we'll be able to talk now. After what you did... What did I do? Lucas asks, not wanting to admit where he is, or that he is actually speaking with Sylvanus. It is only a dream, nothing more. You used me to advance your cause. My cause? Lucas cannot believe it. I did it for you, Sylvanus. Are you sure about that? Of course I'm sure, Lucas shouts, but then realizes his tone suggests otherwise. I was trying to save your life, as well as this forest. Yes, Sylvanus says and by now Lucas can see a small outline of his features. But why? 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 Because I don't want you to die, and I don't want this forest swallowed up by another shopping mall, and I... Your language betrays your vested and limited form of self-interest, Sylvanus says. You say, I this, and I that. What's wrong with acting on some self-interest, Lucas asks. Do we ever really do things that aren't in our self-interest? On a deeper level, you can't. Sylvanus says. That would be illogical. After all, on that level, there is no individual self. You think yourself is just your individual body, separate from all the other individual bodies and things out there. But it is much more. Then how can we ever act against self-interest? Sylvanus laughs and the tree shakes. Only then does Lucas notice all the greens, olive, pea, ivy, seaweed, greens everywhere. You do it all the time. How? Whenever you hurt another life form for your short-term gain, this goes against your large self, self-interest. Or whenever you take advantage of someone else for your profit. In short, whenever you act in your belief that only your individual body is yourself, damn the rest of creation. Wait a minute, Lucas says, realizing his feet are starting to float off the ground and the forest imagery is starting to shimmer and fade. Then how could you have said that I was acting out of a limited form of self-interest? Because, 
you were acting with your own interests first, how you would be perceived as a hero, how your wife would think you were sane, how you could then come to this forest and be proud of the fact that you saved it. See, even in regard to your noble intention of saving this forest, you placed yourself at the center of the drama. All this without thinking about how your actions might affect others. But wait, Lucas says, trying to hold on to the dream. I was trying to save your life. Maybe I didn't want to be saved, Sylvanus says. And by now Lucas is floating above the treetops, so far away he can barely hear Sylvanus say. Ever thought of that? Lucas woke slowly to the news, turning it off as it reported about President Bush's plan to address Congress. It was worrying, as the president was increasingly speaking in belligerent terms, and a strike against Afghanistan seemed inevitable. Lucas didn't dwell on it for long. He had more pressing personal matters than worrying about some war thousands of miles away that his government was going to get involved in. The government took these actions with or without his consent, so what did it really matter what he thought about it? Besides, it was nothing new. They were always sending troops somewhere and had been arming the world for years, so they had to use those weapons, right? He knew he should go out and chat with Sylvanus before school, but would he be there to chat with? After all, hadn't Sylvanus said that he was only going to have conversations through dreams? Yes, but that was only a dream. At least that's what he kept telling himself as he threw together a quick outing package of coffee in a thermos, a sweater which he wore, and a light jacket which he didn't. He also included a few strips of beef jerky. Not exactly breakfast food, but Lucas never really worried about the rules of what food could be eaten when. Ready to go, Lucas set out to speak to the tree man. He made good time to the tree man's grove. The air felt even colder than yesterday. He was already starting to feel wistful about the days of summer. It sometimes was hard to believe the weather could have such a drastic effect on one's life and outlook, but it did. As winter approached, Lucas and most adults he knew would stop spending as much time outdoors, and when they did venture out somewhere, it was often for a purpose. Let's get a Christmas tree, for example. Very few people went outside during the winter in western Washington just to experience nature's dark season. And west of the Cascades, it was often cold and damp very early. So by late September, you'd already gotten resigned to the fact that summer was over and the rains had returned. The colder weather also made Lucas's pace in the outdoors faster, and that worked well with his hurried schedule that morning. As he looked up at where he'd last seen Sylvanus, he felt as though the knot had gotten smaller, and it was harder to make out the tree man's human head. I brought you something, Lucas said, and held up a small cup of coffee. Might help you shake those blues, or, if nothing else, it'll warm you up. No reaction from Sylvanus. In fact, the forest, while usually quiet, was unnaturally still this morning. If Lucas focused hard enough, he could sense the presence that he always associated with the forest, but it was as though it was hiding. Okay, Lucas said. I'm just going to set up this ladder so I can at least give you stuff easier from here on out. He put up the small step ladder, which gave him an easy chance to reach the tree man and give him something, if he'd ever wake up. Look, Lucas said, I've been having these weird dreams where I've been talking with you or stranger, where I am you. They seem so real, but I know they're just dreams. I don't know where I'm going with this, so I'll just spit it out. I'm sorry, Lucas said. I know I betrayed you, 
but I couldn't think of anything else to do to stop this forest from being destroyed. Do you realize that if the ruling had been made, the chainsaws could have been buzzing and sawing through this forest in a week or two? I know the company is anxious to get this project going before the winter sets in. But none of that stuff matters to you, does it? Lucas continued, not sure if Sylvanus was listening, but proceeding as though he was. This forest is worth so much more alive than it is dead, but most people can't understand that. They think, hey, there's plenty of forest left in the world. What's one more little piece? But one more little piece here, and one more little piece there, and soon there aren't very many little pieces left. And some people even try to attach a monetary value on a forest, which is an obscenity. Something as sacred as a forest cannot be reduced into something so vulgar as money. I suppose we could chop down all the forests for profit, but then what would we have left? What would a world without trees be like? Would it even be worth living in? Could we live in it? Surely not as we are living today. And while stopping this mall may not be the battle that's going to turn the tide in this battle for nature, it's the battle we, you, Sylvanus, and me, Paul Lucas, are fighting. And it's the only one where we can have some control over the outcome. So think about it. Think about why saving this forest is the best move for all of us. And think about your fellow trees that don't have the voice you have. Think about what they would want, too. Lucas stopped. He'd rambled and wasn't really sure he'd made sense. He was just speaking from his heart, not really thinking about how to phrase what he'd said. By now, he was pretty sure Sylvanus was going to stay inside the tree. For whatever reason, that was all right with Lucas. As he stood there in the silence, he started to have this feeling that perhaps Sylvanus had a plan. And that plan, while proceeding along a different path than Lucas's, had the same goal in mind. Growing up, Lucas had sometimes had this feeling that there was something guiding his experiences. But as he grew older, he'd somehow forgotten that feeling. Yet now, as he took in the forest air, the feeling came back to him. It made him feel that even if things didn't seem like they were proceeding well, perhaps they were going that way for a reason. Maybe it was best not to get so caught up in questioning it. So as he took in a few more breaths of the clean, crisp forest air, he decided he was going to start trusting Sylvanus. He wasn't going to come out here again unless someone asked him to come out. For now, he was going to get back to busying himself with his life in the real world. When he got home, Lucas saw the red light on his answering machine blinking. He pushed play. Bro, it's me, came Larry's voice. And I'm sure you may not want to hear from me after I stood you up the other night. No excuses, just my deepest apologies. I know sometimes I am not a very reliable friend, and I'm going to work on that. I want to make it up to you. So I was hoping you might be able to get out of the house for some fun Friday night. Anyway, get back to me, would you? The message ended and Lucas realized that in the wake of his victory revealing Sylvanus, he'd forgotten all about Larry's no-show at the meeting. Maybe he was just so used to it with Larry that it had been easy to forget. But this was a first. Larry had never apologized without prompting. It meant something to Lucas, and he quickly forgave his friend. He didn't have time to call him then, but he would as soon as he could. And he'd show that the apology was accepted by accepting his invitation for Friday night. Good friends in this world were hard to come by, and Lucas wasn't going to be one of those people who took the ones he had for granted. Chapter 6. Scare Tactics Relief That was Lucas's strongest feeling when he went to school that morning. On the other hand, he hoped he wasn't slipping back to his old self by deciding to stop visiting Sylvanus. 
but he didn't think he was. He wasn't giving up the fight. He was just fighting a little differently, a little more patiently. He also felt that this decision respected Sylvanus's feelings, so perhaps Sylvanus would be quicker to forgive him. Yet Lucas knew he didn't have much time to get Sylvanus out of the tree. He'd been expecting the decision to be delayed at least a month, but Wesson had only given them one more week. He didn't know if that was enough time for Sylvanus to get over his anger and start speaking with him again, not to mention show himself to Wesson's scientists. Still, he had to hope. In the end, Lucas figured he'd give it a few days, and that gave him one less thing to worry about. As soon as he walked into the teacher's room, though, his momentary relief was drop-kicked by an urgent Danielson, who had quickly discarded a half-eaten donut into the garbage and swigged down his coffee before running over to Lucas. Yeah, I got it, Lucas said, finding the repetitiveness of the start of every school day oddly humorous now. We need to talk. Yes, Danielson said. In private? Lucas asked. The only two teachers in the room were engrossed in the crossword puzzle, so Danielson said, No, did you get a call from Wilbur or Weston? No, Lucas said. Why? Wilbur messaged me this morning, Danielson said. Said Weston has a team of scientists together and wants to get them out to the forest tomorrow afternoon. Tomorrow? Lucas said. What time? Didn't say, Danielson said. So they didn't contact you at all in the last day or so? Nope, Lucas said. Only person I've been in contact with has been Wilson over at the post. I took him out there yesterday. Strange, I didn't see anything in the paper this morning, Danielson said. What happened? Nothing. Sylvanus didn't show himself. Sylvanus? That's what I named him, Lucas said. It's the name of an ancient forest god. Cute, Danielson said. Did you give him a last name? Douglas, after the kind of tree he's in, Lucas said. Sylvanus Douglas, Danielson said. Sounds dignified. Well, in a way, Lucas said. That's a good word to describe him. Anyway, why do you think they wouldn't call me? Maybe they think you'll bias things, or the lawyer for the developers will use your presence as a reason for appeal or something, Danielson said. That said, I think it's important that you go out there. You might be the only person Sylvanus is willing to show himself for. Well, I don't really care if they want me out there or not, Lucas said. It's public land, and I'm going. I just hope they don't go before school gets out. If I was you, I'd get on the horn with Wilbur and find out what he knows. Of all the people involved, you're the person he'll most want to have out there. Good idea, Lucas said. Thanks, Sam. At lunch that day, Lucas was minding his own business, devouring a triple-decker peanut butter and jelly sandwich and some potato chips, when he overheard a strange conversation between music teacher Rose Collins and Jack McCollum, who taught third grade. It was just an easier day without him there, Collins was saying. I know he's a popular kid with both the teachers and students, but sometimes he really drives me crazy. I often don't know how to handle him. Lucas heard this and decided to tune in. He was sitting across the room and Collins's back was to him, so he didn't think she was aware he could hear what she was saying. Lucas stopped crunching on his potato chips and attempted to zone out on his sandwich in case McCollum happened to look across the room and see that he was eavesdropping. Totally understand, McCollum said. When I had him in my class last year, there were many times I wanted to wring his neck. The only problem was, the more I tried to crack down on him, the more he would act up. Well, this recent incident will give us more leeway in doling out the appropriate punishment to him, I would think, Collins said. He won't be such an untouchable, especially now that he's fallen on the wrong side of Weinberg. 
Excuse me, came the voice of Wendy, who had materialized from the teacher's bathroom. But I can't help but wonder if you guys are talking about Chris Lee. Collins didn't answer, but McCollum said, That's right, Wendy. Is that a problem? No, no, of course not, Wendy said. It's just the first time I've heard people express what I've sometimes felt when I dealt with Chris. And don't get me wrong, I like him, but he's a handful sometimes. I'm not always sure whether or not to let him free. Lucas wanted to say something, but realized that by doing so, it would reveal he had been eavesdropping. Besides, he'd never been really friendly with either Collins, who he thought was a prude, or McCollum, who was an ex-military disciplinarian, and thus from a very different school of thought from Lucas. So he just kept staring at his sandwich, appearing to be dozing off, but really paying close attention. Well, I know that letting him run free was a surefire way to break discipline in the classroom, McCollum said. That said, he's a strange one. Just about every kid I've taught in my twenty years has responded the way I would expect when I raised my voice at them, but Chris didn't. Like I said, the more I cracked down, the more he acted up. Lucas wanted to yell out, Good for him! But again, he didn't say a word. He wanted to see where this was going. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how well he responds to that essay he's supposed to write, Collins said. I heard that if he doesn't pass Weinberg's standards, Chris will have to write it again. What are Weinberg's standards? Wendy asked. Probably just seeing if the kid shows remorse and an understanding of why he has been punished, McCollum answered. I'm not so sure he does. Well, whether he does or not, Collins concluded, I just hope this experience humbles and mellows him a bit. Amen to that, McCollum said, and with that they went back to talking about something Lucas wasn't interested in. Lucas is sitting on a beach with bluffs at his back, eating fish tacos when the bark-covered man sits down next to him. Hello, Paul, Sylvanus says. Enjoying the weather? Yes, Lucas says, and the fish tacos. They look good, Sylvanus says. Lately I've been coming here a lot. I like the ocean. It's so different from the forest. So vast, as though there are no limits to the possibilities. I've never thought of it that way, Lucas says. I just like the way it plays with the senses, the smell of the salty air, the feel of the wind on my skin, the taste of the fish tacos, the sound of the surf, the sight of the seagulls circling for food. It's wonderful. Yes, it is, Sylvanus says. But, Paul, I want to see this place outside of my dreams, and I'm going to need your help to do that. Sylvanus, Lucas says, for me to help you, you're going to need to start talking with me, for real, again. I know, Sylvanus says, and I suppose I won't be breaking my vow to the forest if I start talking with you again. Vow to the forest? Lucas asks. Oops, Sylvanus says. I'm not supposed to tell you about that. Can I just keep that a secret for now? Lucas wants to push him, yet he realizes he's just made progress by getting Sylvanus to agree to talk with him again, so he drops it and says, Sure. Sylvanus, there's something else I have to tell you, Lucas says. You're going to have to take some more mushrooms. You need to take a megadose. Sylvanus cringes and says, oh, I suppose you're right. And one more thing. Tomorrow afternoon, a group of scientists are coming out to meet you, Lucas says. This is another chance for you to prove you're real and to stop the destruction of the forest. I want to do it my way, Sylvanus says. Your way? Yes, remember the plan I told you about? The plan I had before you tricked me and revealed me to those people? Lucas bristles at Sylvanus's characterization of what he'd done as a trick, but again, he doesn't want to upset Sylvanus, so he says, Yes, I do. 
I want to try that tomorrow and see what happens, Sylvanus says. Lucas is about to respond, but just like that, Sylvanus has disappeared, leaving Lucas with the fish tacos, the wind, the waves, the salty air, and the seagulls. Lucas called Wilbur that morning and found out that the scientists were planning to go to the forest at 3.30, which was the exact time Lucas would be leaving school. He figured he could get out there by four and hoped he would not be too late. Three scientists from the University of Puget Sound followed Joseph Weston down the now muddy slope that led in the last rush canyon. Weston had learned from his last experience and was wearing hiking boots, and all three scientists had followed suit. As they entered the forest on that pleasant afternoon, the sun disappeared behind a wall of clouds. The lack of sunlight and the canopy of the towering trees darkened the forest, causing Weston to regret not bringing a flashlight. It wasn't quite dark enough that they needed it, but Weston made a mental note to bring one if they had to come down here again. The three scientists were talking about how precious the ecosystem of this particularly ancient piece of forest was, and as Weston listened, he felt like perhaps these men were not objective enough to do their job. He worried that if they claimed to see something, the developer's lawyer would just say they saw it because they wanted to see it. When they reached Salisbury Creek, Weston had to stop and get his bearings, trying to remember which of the trails Lucas had used. At last, he settled on one. Just as they started walking, a squirrel appeared on the path in front of them and started chattering. Cute little bugger, Weston said. The squirrel turned around and flickered his tail at them. Am I crazy to ask if he is angry with us? Weston asked. The scientist didn't respond, because right after he asked the question, Two of them cried out in pain. What? asked the third. Something just hit me, said the first one, the fattest of the group. Me too, the second scientist, who was tall and lean, said. Ouch, Weston cried out. What the heck? Just then, Weston looked up and saw something he'd never forget. On several branches above them, a group of squirrels had gathered and seemed to be targeting the scientist and Weston with acorns. I'll be damned, he said, just as one glanced off his head. Out of the corner of his eye, Weston saw something large charging toward him. Frightened, he began to run off. Where are you going? asked the fat scientist, but Weston didn't answer. The fat scientist followed Weston with the other scientists, who must have been tired of being target practice for the bombardier squirrels. And that was when Weston heard the first sound. At first, he thought it was a wolf but it sounded too demented to be a wolf. Panicked, he didn't have time to ask the scientists what they thought it was. Instead, he picked up his pace. By now, he had no idea where he was running to, only that he wanted to get away. The scientists continued to follow him, though the fat one was falling behind. Suddenly, Weston heard a rustling from some bushes and could have sworn he saw a large animal, a bear, ready to emerge. Meanwhile, the mysterious noises got louder and changed in tone. They weren't wolves, Weston thought, but perhaps it would have been better if they were. No, they sounded more threatening than wolves, and at least with wolves he could identify them. This sound was from another world. What the hell was going on? He ran faster and faster, no longer worried about sticking together with the scientists. All he cared about was his own safety. They could take care of themselves. He was trying to run away from the sounds, but the more he ran, the more it seemed as though they were coming from all around him, and they were getting closer. Suddenly, the sounds stopped, replaced by a flat silence. 
He stopped too, hoping to catch his breath. From somewhere behind him, he thought he heard the scientist running, but worried that perhaps it was another bear. Another? Then the sounds reappeared from another direction. It sounded like he was surrounded by dark sprites, creatures whose intention was to suck the guts out of him and the scientists, then gleefully recount the experience with each other over a few beers, or whatever it was that dark sprites drank. He began to run, and suddenly, from behind the tree in front of him, a figure emerged, and it was the fat scientist. The two men collided and crashed to the ground, and Wesson's glasses fell off his head. Wesson was searching for his glasses when the scientist said, "'What are you leading us into, Mr. Wesson?' Wesson was shaking badly and had broken into a sweat, so he took his handkerchief and patted down his forehead, unable to think of how to answer the question. Instead, he continued to search for his glasses, when out of the corner of his eye, he could have sworn he saw two black ghosts gliding through the air as though they were on some invisible brooms. Well, what the, what the devil is that? he asked. What? replied the scientist, who had his back turned to the ghosts. Just then, the other two scientists emerged into the clearing, and the fat scientist said, It was just them. These men perhaps already thought he was crazy, considering the assignment he'd given them. So rather than give voice to what he thought it was, Weston said, uh, nothing. He finally found his glasses, and when the haunting sounds began again, he did his best to put the fear out of his voice and said, Let's get this over with. They walked quickly with Weston trying to figure out just where they were. It was not an easy task, considering his state of mind and the continuing cacophony of the echoing voices. Suddenly, though, he saw the rocky cliff that he remembered passing a week ago. It's just up here, he said and as they approached the grove, the sound ceased, to Weston's great relief. They reached the grove, and Weston showed the scientist the knot that was supposedly a man's head living and speaking in a tree. The men stared, doing their best to treat this knot in the side of the tree objectively, attempting to keep open to the possibility that the knot was something more than it appeared. "'So what do we do?' asked the fat scientist. "'Ask it some questions,' Weston said. "'Here, I'll start.' Um, hello, uh, I saw you the other day with your friend, Paul Lucas. Anyway, I brought out some men to ask you some questions. Nothing happened, so Weston continued. Don't worry, they don't have very many questions. Uh, mostly we just want to verify that you're real. So if you could just show yourself, we'll be out of your hair in a minute or two. Still, nothing happened. The scientists took turns asking him questions. The questions were broken up by long stretches of silence, where each of the four men wondered how to proceed. Just then, Weston heard a twig snap from the trail behind them, and he and the scientist jumped. They turned around, and into the clearing stumbled Paul Lucas. Hello, Mr. Lucas, Weston said. Sorry, did I startle you? Lucas asked, looking amused. Uh, no, no, that's all right, Weston said. Look, I know you were passionate about this case, but I'd really like this to be a closed investigation today. I'm just trying to help, Lucas said, and, looking at the knot, added, Looks like you might need it. Well, I suppose it can't hurt to try, Wesson said. I'd hate to think we came all the way out here for nothing. Let's just agree that we won't mention to anybody that you were here with us, Mr. Lucas. Is that okay? Lucas said, No problem, and the scientists all agreed. He began, Hey, Sylvanus, what's up? So the men I told you about are here, and if you'd be so kind as to show yourself... We can all go away and give you some peace and quiet. That's what you want, right? Well, 
If you show yourself, not only will you get it now, but you'll have it forever, as this forest won't be destroyed. Of course, nothing happened. Weston watched as Lucas shifted nervously from foot to foot. Come on, Sylvanus, Lucas yelled. You've made your point. These men are just trying to do their job, and that job, need I remind you, is to save your forest. Still nothing. Damn it, Lucas screamed, veins on his neck bulging. Weston watched him with concern. While he was reasonably sure he'd seen a man's head in the tree the other day, for the first time, he began to doubt that. Had his eyes tricked him? Yet as he watched Lucas punch the side of a tree, he felt that if there wasn't anything there, Lucas wouldn't be getting so frustrated, would he? You really ought to quit fucking around, Lucas yelled. None of us are fucking around. This is a very serious life and death matter. Come on out. It's okay, Mr. Lucas, Weston said. We will come out again. Yes, yes, Lucas said. That would be best. He sleeps a lot, and I must admit, this is not the first time I've come out to chat with him when he wouldn't wake up. I'm really sorry, though. That's okay, Mr. Lucas. Not your fault, Weston said, though he didn't fully mean it. He wasn't sure why Lucas was apologizing. Was his apology his way of expressing some guilt because he had pulled off an elaborate hoax? Weston had to consider the possibility, and as he did so, for the first time, he felt angry at Lucas. After all, this was not only Lucas's reputation at stake, but Weston's too. The newspaper had reported that Weston had saved the decision, and the article gave the impression that he did so because he himself had seen something. How was he going to live that down? Now that said, Weston said, his voice stern now, your tree man has one more shot. Sometime next week, we'll figure out exactly when later. But if he doesn't come out, I'm going to have no choice but to allow the development of this land to go through. Lucas looked at Weston, his big brown eyes pleading with him, and said, You said you saw him. Yes, I did, Weston said, but now I'm not so sure. Besides, I need independent, objective people, like these scientists, to see him. If this thing is real, then there's no reason it can't come out again and prove himself, right? Maybe not, Lucas said. Maybe he doesn't want to come out. Well, Weston said, I'm sorry, but if he wants to save this forest, he's going to have to. One last chance, Mr. Lucas. One more. Lucas hadn't expected Sylvanus to come out, but still, he was frustrated. He knew Sylvanus's plan to convince the animals and spirits of the forest to scare Weston and the scientists was a long shot. He tried to tell Sylvanus that Weston wasn't going to block them all just because the forest was really creepy. In fact, he reasoned, that might make him want to cut it down even more. So Lucas had hoped that Sylvanus would realize that the only way to save the forest would be to reveal himself. Really, what else could they do? As he watched Weston and the scientists walk out of the grove, Lucas decided he needed something to take his mind off his problems. He remembered Larry's call, and decided a night out on the town with Larry, where he could drown all of these spinning out of control plots of his life in a large amount of beer and booze would do it. But he'd soon learn that it would take more than booze to take his mind off his troubles. Chapter 7 Lucas Gets His Groove On Terry gave you the go-ahead? Larry was asking over the phone. Well, not yet, Lucas said but I'm not going to let that stop me. She's going to be home in a bit, and I'm just going to tell her I need this after all that's gone down this week. All right, bro, you know more about how marriage works than I do, Larry said. Do you want to just drop by my hotel and pick me up at, say, 8 o'clock? Sounds perfect, Lucas said. 
I can't believe we lucked out and Zony Mash is playing tonight. Yep, Larry said. Just like old times. Just then, Lucas heard Terry's car door slam. All right, bro, she's home. I'll see you in a while. Terry walked in with two paper sacks full of hamburgers, french fries, and drinks, and Lucas could tell she was tired. What else was new? Hi, baby, he said. Long day? Yeah, the usual, she said. And I gotta go back in tomorrow for several hours. Harsh, Lucas said. Nah, no big deal, she said. Comes with the territory. How about you? Nothing unusual either, Lucas said. I was just down in the forest with a group of scientists who wanted to see Sylvanus. Unfortunately, he didn't come out. Weston is starting to doubt me. Well, I don't, Terry said. I saw him myself, so you don't have to worry about me questioning your sanity. About this, at least. Lucas laughed. Thanks, honey. Hey, I don't want to burden you, but I could really use a night out, and I just got off the horn with Larry. Zony Mash is playing tonight. Really? Terry said. I didn't even know they were still around. Yep, Lucas said. Anyway, would you be mad at me for going out? Nah, she said. I'll get Scarlet to bed early, and then I can get some R&R before hitting the sack early myself. Cool, Lucas said. Thanks, honey. You do look run down, Paul. Don't overdo it, okay? Scout's honor, Lucas said, and made a half-hearted attempt at some sort of scout-like sign with his hand. You were never a Boy Scout, she said. Yeah, and lots of people aren't Christians, but they still swear on the Bible in court, Lucas said. Terry laughed, and they sat down to eat the fast food. Quickly, of course. Lucas and Larry stood in a slow-moving line, waiting to get into a small club that had been the spot during the grunge era, but had run down over the years. Lucas never liked this place, even back then, as the floor was hard concrete and the air always felt dank. Nah, it was too bad the show wasn't over at the Rainbow Bar and Grill in the University District. It was much more colorful, the floors were more forgiving, and maybe, most importantly, the staff was a lot kinder. At this club, every person was required to hand their ticket over to one intimidating goon, lift their arms for another intimidating goon, for a search of all but their body cavities, and then answer intimidating questions from both of them. Lucas sometimes felt like he was trying to get into a high-security prison and not a club. Worse yet, the two goons, one who looked like a gorilla and the other who looked like a chubby rhino, were taking their sweet time, and meanwhile, sounds of the music were drifting outside. "'Could somebody hurry this up?' said a hippie dude in patchwork pants. "'Is there a problem back there?' asked Gorilla Goon, making a show of the fact that he could stop doing his job altogether and thus make the concert-goers wait even longer. The hippie didn't say anything, probably because his girlfriend was hushing him, but Lucas said to him, "'You're right. This is ridiculous.' "'Just more of the post-9-11 paranoia that's taken over,' said another man who wore a ponytail, but was a lot more conservatively dressed than the hippie. Lucas guessed he was a lawyer for some liberal outfit like the ACLU. Lucas and Larry were just about to the front of the line, where the two goons were grilling some girl who'd apparently handed them a fake ID. "'Just how old are you?' Gorilla Goon asked. "'Twenty-four, she said, and cast her eyes down. Bullshit, said Rhino Goon. Now get out of here. Can I at least have my card back? What, this fake card? said Rhino Goon. No, I was thinking of keeping it, or giving it to my friends over there. And he singled across the street to a parked police car. 
Want to come with me? Fuck you, the girl said and stormed off as Gorilla Goon was saying. What did you say? Leave it alone, Lucas said. What did you say to me? asked Rhino Goon. Forget about it, Lucas said. Time's a-wasting. Yes, and it can keep wasting if you want to argue with me, Gorilla Goon said. Yeah, we don't have to let you in at all, said Rhino Goon. Okay, look, we're sorry, Larry said, just trying to maneuver them out of the situation. Rhino Goon grabbed Lucas's ID, eyed him, and Gorilla Goon patted him down extra hard before finally saying, Go ahead, have a good show. Sure, Lucas said, but couldn't resist saying, No thanks to you, under his breath. What? Gorilla Goon asked, but by then Lucas had already walked past him and Larry was saying, Sorry, he's just had a rough week. Just tell him we'll be watching, Rhino Goon said, and Gorilla Goon chuckled. Larry caught up to Lucas, who was red in the face and cursing under his breath. What's gotten into you, man? Sorry, Lucas said. Just fed up with dudes like that. Here we are in an entertainment venue, and they are acting like we are suspects in a police lineup. I know, it's bullshit, Larry said. But sometimes it's better just to keep your mouth shut and grin and bear it. I know, Lucas said. It's just been hard for me lately. Larry laughed and said, I know. Let's see if we can get a drink in us and settle our nerves. The two men rambled to the bar, and Larry bought two shots of tequila, their usual evening starter. Both drank them quickly, and as they did, they made exaggerated winces, something they'd always done in college to poke fun at people who couldn't drink a shot without making a production out of it. They both laughed, clearly enjoying the walk down memory lane. Lucas bought two beers, which they downed as quickly as possible, realizing they were losing valuable dancing time. Okay, Lucas said, observing the crowded club. Let's find somewhere on this floor to get our groove on. There wasn't a lot of room, but Lucas and Larry had plenty of experience dancing big, as they called it. Dancing big meant dancing in a circular fashion, making sure to oh-so-slightly bump into the people around them until they backed off enough to give the two friends more floor space. Seattle concertgoers were, in general a passive breed, and usually would submit. Tonight was no exception. Zony Mash was a really tight, light-hearted jazz band that played very danceable tunes. Almost as if on cue, they broke into Lucas's favorite song, with the spice on top, and he couldn't help expanding his dancing space just a little bit more. He flashed a big grin at Larry, who was also getting his groove on, his curly red hair falling loose over his shoulders, and Lucas knew it was only a matter of time before the two of them turned into sweaty messes. Larry was wearing a very loud, colorful Grateful Dead t-shirt with one of the band's iconic images, the Grateful Dead bear, soaking up a rain shower on the front and celebrating the coming of the sun and a rainbow on the back. As the band finished and entered the next song, Prudence RSVP, Lucas noticed an extremely attractive blonde chick getting down next to Larry. Lucas couldn't help but remember the night he'd met Terry on a dance floor in Los Angeles. It was one of his favorite memories. So it was only when Zony Mash came to a break in the music that he finally came back to Seattle 2001. As the next song began, Lucas did his best to watch the girl without getting caught. And as he did so, he noticed that the girl was flashing smiles at Larry, who was returning goofy grins of his own. The song carried on for several minutes, and this time Lucas was able to lose himself fully in the music. He'd forgotten the struggles of the last week. There was no Sylvanus, 
no Chris Lee, no Bin Laden, no Bush, no Rialto, no Bob Schmidt, no uptight security guards who looked like African wildlife, none of them. He'd always appreciated the power of live music and dance to truly focus oneself in the moment. Yet there was one distraction, the girl. She wasn't quite rubbing herself up against Larry, but she was moving in that direction. Lucas thought she looked like she was tipsy, on what he didn't know, but started to think that perhaps his friend wasn't going to be leaving the club with him that night. When the song ended, she went up on her tiptoes and whispered something in Larry's ear. Larry responded, she laughed and nodded, and then another song started, interrupting any chance they had at more conversation. When that song ended, Larry leaned over to Lucas and said, She's going to come out to the car at set break to get high with us. This was news to Lucas. Cool, man. Lucas didn't know how to say anything more than that. He didn't want to spoil Larry's chances, so he wasn't going to say no. That said, Larry hadn't said anything to him about getting high at set break, though perhaps he didn't need to. After all, it had been their M.O. back in the day, so Larry was just sticking to tradition. Lucas tried to dance during the next song, but Larry's announcement had taken him out of the moment. All of a sudden, he had a new dilemma to deal with. Again, he didn't want to get in the way of Larry's good time, and perhaps even his chance to score, but he also remembered that he had a vow to his wife and to himself about not smoking pot anymore. It had been four years, and while he'd been tempted before, never had the temptation been so immediate. As he thought about it, he considered the reasons and consequences. The reasons were his agreement with Terry, and the consequences were his fear of breaking trust with her and losing his job and his standing in the community if somehow someone found out. But would they? How? Lucas considered how many times they had smoked at set break in their past and never been caught, so why should that change tonight? If anything, they were even less of a target for the police, considering they were older now, and Lucas was no longer wearing his hair down his back. Larry, on the other hand, still. Ah, fuck it. The booze was coursing through his body and clouding his thinking. Anyway, he knew they'd be careful, and in the end, nobody was going to find out. Plus, it was just this once. Satisfied with the decision, Lucas danced until he had rivulets, streams, and rivers of sweat pouring down his body during the final two songs of the set. Before he knew it, the three of them were sitting in Lucas's car, and Larry was passing a full bowl of very green marijuana to the girl who said, Groovy. The way she said it sounded kind of fake to Lucas, but he wasn't really paying attention to what she said, and it appeared that Larry wasn't either. Like Lucas, Larry was leering at her, and it wasn't hard to understand why. She was stunning. A real knockout. A hottie. Just then, Lucas asked himself why she had chosen to party down with the two of them. After all, neither he nor Larry were particularly good-looking, just average dudes having a good time. And that's when Lucas figured it out. They were having a good time. Probably the most obvious good time on the floor. The girl had wanted to get high, so looked for people who likely were carrying weed. And who is more likely than a long-haired dude in a Grateful Dead t-shirt who was getting down? Lucas smiled at his logic, and just then Larry passed him the pipe. Man, it smelled good. Perhaps he was over-anxious, because when he took a deep hip, he immediately started coughing. First time? Larry asked, and the girl laughed. Lucas got his coughing under control and said, Yeah, right. And this time, hit it correctly. 
Almost immediately, he felt the familiar warmth buzzing through his body, warmth that made him want to break out the world's biggest smile. Why had he forsaken this feeling? The pipe went around a few more times, and the three giggled and chatted about inconsequential things that Lucas didn't remember by the time they'd re-entered the club. If the first set had been a good time, the second set was like a musical and dancing orgasm. The music sounded fuller, yet more detailed, and Lucas could hear how Zoni were experts at throwing a variety of rhythms and hooks at the listener. When the show ended, the girl said something briefly to Larry and handed him a piece of paper, before telling Lucas, goodbye, and disappearing into the crowd. Larry looked a little disappointed, but was still smiling as he walked out into the night with Lucas. On the way home, Larry asked Lucas about the girl. Do you think I have a chance? Do you want the truth? Lucas asked, thinking how best to tell Larry about his theory of why the girl had chosen him. Yeah, hit me with it, Larry said. I think she just used us to get high, Lucas said. Larry stopped smiling. Bro, are you serious? Yeah, Lucas said. It's the only thing that makes sense. I mean, why did she pick us? The reason is because you have long hair, a dead t-shirt, and we're getting down. All three things indicate you are probably a dude who smokes grass. Wow, man, Larry said. If that's true, why did she give me her number? I don't know, man, Lucas said. Maybe I'm wrong. She seemed nice and all, so maybe she was interested. Or maybe she was just being polite. I don't think so, Larry said. Well, I'd suggest giving her a call tomorrow and see where it goes, Lucas said. Just don't get your hopes up too high. I'd hate for you to be disappointed. Understood, Larry said. Lucas dropped Larry off at his hotel and headed home. As he was driving, his stomach started growling at him, and he knew he was suffering a serious case of the munchies. Fortunately, there were a variety of fast food restaurants still open in Lincolnton, so he chose Jack in the Box because it had the biggest burgers, and he was beyond hungry. He ordered a double cheeseburger and fries and pulled up to the drive through window. He checked his pocket for his wallet and realized he'd left it in the glove compartment. When he opened it, Larry's bag of grass came tumbling out. Shit, Lucas thought, hoping the cashier didn't see it. He quickly covered it with the floor mat and did his best to put on a poker face as he handed the cashier his money. She gave him no indication about whether or not she'd seen it, which actually made Lucas more nervous than if she'd been more obvious. Did she know? Who was she? If she saw it, does she know who I am? If she does, will she tell anybody? All these questions ran through Lucas's mind, but he didn't stick around to ask them. He wolfed down the food as he drove, and when he got home, he realized he had to make a decision about the pot. He knew he could call Larry and give it back to him. That would be the best thing to do. But he knew he had other options, too. The night had been so wonderful, and he was still buzzed, so he made the decision to hold on to the weed for now. He remembered that Terry was going to work tomorrow, and Scarlet was going to her friend's house for the day. Why not pick up a pipe from the local smoke shop and enjoy a smoke in the forest before visiting Sylvanus? Nobody ever came down into the forest, so there was no risk of anybody finding out. Indeed, why not? Chapter 8 Stoned Remembrances when Lucas woke the next morning, both Terry and Scarlet were gone. He had a slight headache, strong enough to remind him of what had transpired the night before. It didn't take long to remember the weed in the car and his decision to go to a local smoke shop and buy a pipe. But now that he had the advantage of sobriety to help him make his decision, 
he again ran through the consequences about breaking his vow to Terry. And again, though he didn't want to violate their trust, he ultimately didn't think it mattered that much, especially if he was never caught in the first place. And he just couldn't figure how he would be caught if he only smoked in the forest, well away from the prying eyes of the law and his wife. So he scrambled up some eggs and enjoyed the Zony Mass CD he'd bought at the show, wishing his headache away as he considered his day. After getting the pipe, he would go to the forest, have a smoke, and then give Sylvanus a monster dose of mushrooms. What would that dose do? Was it really too much to expect Sylvanus to be able to recall enough muscle memory to separate his body from the tree? And if he did, what was he supposed to do next? Again, Lucas figured this question was one better put off into the future. First, he had to get the man out of the tree before he could worry about what to do with him. Ultimately, Lucas figured he could sleep in their spare bedroom, even though it was now being used as a storage room for all the stuff they had collected over the years. During breakfast, Lucas perused the post to see if there were any updates due to yesterday's failed meetings with the scientists. Luckily, there were none. He finished and got ready to go to the smoke shop, which was in a small strip mall on the outskirts of downtown. While everything they sold was legal, it was not the sort of store Lucas wanted to be seen entering. So, he wore a hooded sweatshirt to conceal his face from everyone, except from those who looked directly at him. It would have to do, as he wasn't about to wear a ski mask. He pulled into the strip mall parking lot and was relieved to see that there were just a few cars around. It appeared most of those people were in the coin laundromat next to the pipe shop. Lucas turned off the engine, checked if the coast was clear, and began to walk toward the store. Just as he was about to enter, he saw a mother and two children coming out of a hardware store at the end of the strip mall. Shit, Lucas thought. Those are two of mine. What are the odds? Just then, Lucas realized that in a small town like Lincolnton, the odds were a lot greater than if he was living in a big city like Seattle. The fact one could see neighbors and people you knew from work was both the charm and the curse of the place. Until that morning, Lucas had rarely done anything that would make him consider the curse side. He'd always done whatever he could to stay within the ground rules of community-accepted behavior. But now that he was crossing over those cultural lines in the sand, was he really ready for it? He didn't have much time to ponder it, because at that moment one of the boys looked over toward Lucas, who quickly cast his glance down so the boy wouldn't get a clear look at his face. Did he see me? He decided to linger outside the smoke shop, pretending to look at the various free newspapers and circulars while he waited for the young boys to move along. After a while, they did. But not before Lucas found a newspaper and a headline that intrigued him. Nature's Best Defense? blared the headline of this Seattle sound off over a photo of a beautiful forest grove. The sound off was a local free alternative weekly, and Lucas stared at the cover until the family drove out of the parking lot. After putting the newspaper in his car, he entered the smoke shop. The shop had all sorts of bric-a-brac for the smoker culture. Lucas was impressed by the back room where they had $300 three-foot-high bongs made of elaborate glass. Lucas had no intention of buying one, but he still enjoyed appreciating their craftsmanship. Finally, he went to the front counter where the pipes were contained in a glass case. After chatting a bit with the clerk, Lucas walked out of the store with a bag of screens, a lighter, and a small pipe that could fold up on itself and thus was easy to conceal. 
He made it home quickly and put together an outdoor pack, which included his new purchases, the weed, and the newspaper he'd picked up. He was curious to read the article, but wanted to get on with Sylvanus's trip, so he packed it away. He got to Sylvanus's grove around 10.30 a.m., which was plenty of time for the tree man to have a good trip before dark. But before Lucas went to the grove, he stopped about halfway there, sat on a log, and proceeded to pack a small bowl of quality reefer. It only took a few hits for him to feel the magical effects, and by the time he was in the grove, he was feeling positively giddy. He was whistling as he set up his lawn chair, the ladder to reach Sylvanus, and the various items he needed for an afternoon as a trip setter. You're in a good mood this morning, eh? came Sylvanus's mellow, deep voice. Lucas smiled and considered telling Sylvanus about his secret. However, he realized if he did, perhaps Sylvanus would tell Terry or someone. He didn't think that would happen, but why risk it? Yes, Lucas finally said. Yes, Lucas finally said. I'm in a good mood because it's the weekend, and because we are going to give you a super dose to see if we can't get you out of that tree. Forgetting something? Lucas thought about it. What had he forgotten? Suddenly he had it. Oh, yes, I'm also happy because you are back to talking with me outside of my dreams. Sylvanus smiled. Yes, it makes me happy as well, since I am talking again with my one source of human conversation. And if I can get out of this tree, I'll have many sources of conversation. That's definitely worth getting excited about. It sure is, Lucas said, happy too that he didn't have to reveal his secret to Sylvanus. Okay, Sylvanus said. I guess I'm ready to eat those foul things. Let's get this over with. Several times, Sylvanus had almost thrown up the mushrooms. He didn't think it was possible, but for some reason they tasted worse than the first time around. What was worse, he had to eat about twice as many. He hoped it would be worth it. This time, it didn't take very long for the effects to begin. Like the first time, though, it wasn't a pleasant beginning. I think I'm going to throw up, Sylvanus said. Try not to, Lucas said. It felt like there was a colony of tiny bugs crawling around the insides of his stomach, and the feeling was so strong that Sylvanus could almost see them. The imagery was so vivid that he couldn't stop himself. He just had to get some of those critters out of his system. Look out, he shouted to Lucas, and just in time, too, as Sylvanus let loose a stream of brownish liquid that just missed hitting his friend who quickly grabbed his chair and backpack and jumped to the side. Oh, no, Sylvanus said, his insides burning up. No, no, it's okay, Lucas said. You'll be okay. It's been long enough that I'm sure enough of the mushrooms have entered your system. Don't worry, just relax. Take a few deep breaths. Sylvanus did this and closed his eyes. Behind his eyelids, he was starting to see the colors and patterns intensifying. It wasn't unpleasant so he focused his attention on the light show in his mind for several minutes. During that time, the discomfort in his stomach mostly passed. Indigenous cultures say that what you've just experienced is getting well, Lucas said, not as we say, getting sick. They believe that the body has many toxins in it, and sometimes the mushrooms have to expel those toxins before the mushrooms can properly function. Sylvanus just nodded his head, and at last opened his eyes. And what was that? Like before, the forest had taken on a whole new appearance to him. Colors had deepened and intensified. 
it was almost overwhelming. Even more stunning, though, was the odd sensation that the forest, everything from the largest trees to the smallest pine needles, was breathing. He'd always known the forest was full of life, but observing this breathing, he had the strange sensation that the forest was a life. He contemplated this for a long while, how long he didn't know, as time itself seemed to have changed. Finally, he was able to articulate what he was experiencing. It's, it's, uh, uh, alive, Sylvanus stuttered, finding that the orders from his brain to his vocal cords were not getting through as easily as they normally did. What's alive? Lucas asked, but Sylvanus couldn't answer. Instead, he felt that his body had expanded into everything around him. Not only could he deeply sense the giant tree that he lived in, he could sense the inside of the air, the ground, and even the insides of the creatures that shared the forest with him. He knew there were ants under a log across the grove, and he knew the log also housed a colony of mushrooms on its backside. He'd never seen either of these locations, but it was as though his perception had expanded to such a degree that he could see them, or more accurately, feel them. Everything is, Sylvanus said. Everything. It's all together. What is? Lucas asked, knowing how difficult it could be to put into words what one experienced under the influence of entheogenic mushrooms. Everything, Sylvanus said. It's all connected. Me, this tree, the air, the ground, the animals, you, everything. You're having a classical mystical experience, and those don't come around every day, Lucas said. I'm jealous. But let's remember our main purpose. Can you feel your body? Sylvanus didn't want to take his attention away from the all-encompassing oneness of the forest into the narrowed perception of his body, but he knew it was important. So he shifted his attention, and sure enough he could sense his body in a way he'd never even considered possible. It was as though he could see feel every part of his body from the inside out. Yes, Sylvanus said. I can feel everything. Can you move it? This part was harder. Sylvanus found moving his mouth muscles challenging enough. Moving his whole body was even more difficult. He put his mind to it and started from his toes. Slowly, he started to feel them wiggling. He worked his way up toward his waist, and the next thing he knew he could sense the space between his body and the tree. He wiggled some more, and just then Lucas shouted, I saw it! The tree moved! Sylvanus wasn't sure what Lucas meant, but he just kept at it until he felt like he had a lot more wiggle room. After toying with this for several minutes, he could relax his mind, and even when his awareness drifted elsewhere, he could still sense the space between himself and the tree. It's working! he shouted. Lucas looked elated. This is going to work. I don't know exactly why, but it's going to work. All of a sudden, Sylvanus felt an extreme sense of drowsiness overcome him, and he said, I need to close my eyes for a bit. Before Lucas could protest, Sylvanus shut his eyes and was stunned at what he saw. Again, he was in a cornfield under that brilliant blue sky. He heard voices. Someone was shouting, Luke, Luke! and he was trying to hide in the corn from those voices. He felt a sense of joy as one of those voices trailed off looking in the wrong place. He ran in the opposite direction, and it was wonderful, 
Moving was wonderful. He heard other voices, too, all of them calling, Look! Look! And every time one came nearer, he ducked into the corn until they were gone. Just then, the wind picked up, and Sylvanus saw a large, ominous black cloud on the horizon. Hurry, Luke! The dust! Sylvanus knew that the game was over, and that avoiding this black cloud was a lot more serious than keeping away from his siblings. He ran faster, finally finding his brothers and sisters, and all six of them ran as quickly as they could toward a small shack on the horizon. The black cloud was bearing down on them, but they made it to the shack in time. Even with all the windows and doors shuttered, the dust found its way in between the cracks of the shack and dirtied everything inside. It felt horrible, too horrible for Sylvanus to stay in a vision, so he opened his eyes and saw Lucas, a newspaper open on his lap, a pipe in his mouth. He was going to ask about it when the drowsiness came back even stronger, so he closed his eyes and was leaning over the bed of a sickly girl who couldn't be more than twelve years old. She was coughing, and with every cough, a ball of black phlegm came out. Sylvanus wiped it up and said, Doris, hold on, hold on, but he knew it was too late. She wasn't going to make it. This realization filled his normally warm, boyish heart with a hurt so strong it was like a lead weight dragging down his spirit. Why did it have to be Doris? Again, he opened his eyes, and again he felt the urge to close them. This time, he was in a different location, a place where trees, not black dust clouds, dominated the horizon, and where he was in a clean, well-pressed uniform. There was a line of men around him, all repeating, Yes, sir, to a strong-looking man who was pacing back and forth in front of them. Sylvanus wanted to explore this vision further, but sneezed, and after his eyes momentarily opened, he could not regain the vision when he closed them. He was looking at himself in this tree, and he was crying. It didn't take him long to remember this time. It was his first year in the tree, and he remembered crying because he'd felt so completely separated from everything around him. He'd been all alone, and there was nobody there to understand what he was going through. The memory brought tears to his eyes, and he started to cry. Are you okay? came Lucas's soft voice. He opened his eyes, and again beheld the connectedness of the forest and the way it seemed to be breathing. That feeling of isolation was gone, and as he again appreciated the world around him, a sense of well-being enveloped him. Yes, Sylvanus finally said. I'm fine. What did you see? Lucas asked. My past, I think, Sylvanus said. I was in a dust storm in a cornfield. I watched my sister die from coughing, and I was, I think, in the military. And the strangest thing of all, my name was Luke. Lucas just smiled. It made the sort of sense that made sense to a person like Lucas, who felt the universe was built on connections. Sylvanus, I have something I want to tell you, Lucas said, but don't be surprised. Sylvanus braced himself for some sort of bad news. At last, Lucas said, I can see the outline of your toes. Thanks for listening to my reading of my 2015 novel, The Teacher and the Tree Man. If you want to support my work, there are several ways you can do it. 1. Share this podcast. 2. Buy the book. The links are in the show notes. 3. Connect with me on social media via the links in the show notes.
Or four, read my blog and share what you read. Again, the links are in the show notes. And that's it for now. Thanks again, everybody, for your time.